Hey everybody, welcome to Thumbnail, a visual arts podcast. I'm Joe Rosher, illustrator, animator, and adjunct professor. And I'm Louis Rosignol, visual artist, and today on the podcast we're going to be talking to another artist that lives in the same area as Joe and I near Portland, Maine, Max Irwin. We're going to be talking about what he's working on and... He also works at Maine College of Art with Joe, and so they're going to probably tell us a little bit about what they've been dealing with with teaching, you know, with the coronavirus and how they're having to do it from home and some of the challenges that faces. I'm assuming, especially where you're teaching art classes, it makes it even more challenging and hard to do critiques and that type of thing. But let's just get into talking a little bit with Max about what you're working on right now, what project you're working on. And before that, tell us a little bit about who you are. Your elevator pitch. Yeah, your elevator pitch. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I guess my elevator pitch would be I'm a illustrator and adjunct professor. As Lewis mentioned, I teach at Maine College of Art. I also am teaching at Montserrat College of Art in Beverly, Mass. right now as well. I'm trying to break into more of the editorial game. I'd say I would pitch myself as an editorial uh, illustrator, but I'm not necessarily in that realm right now. For the most part right now, what I'm doing is actually app design and app illustration for a game. And that's been pretty much what's taken up my time recently. Mostly like humor-based stuff besides that. I'm kind of moving into a new realm recently. Uh, I definitely thought I was a different artist a year ago. It was a different time for me. And I had an interesting talk with actually one of the people I'm working with on this app with, Scott Nash at Nashbox, about kind of my direction as an artist. I was kind of reaching out to a lot of people trying to figure out why I wasn't getting work, why I couldn't seem to move forward, move past things. It came down to a lot of identity and me kind of constraining myself a little too much. So, yeah, I guess part of my elevator pitch is I'm still trying to redefine that a little bit. Oh, that's perfect, actually. We've been talking about this in other podcasts. One of the main questions we get is around style and how you find your style. And we've had conversations around that. How are some ways you think you've fallen into your quote-unquote style of illustration? I guess the biggest thing has been letting go of resistance or letting go of kind of trying to steer myself too much. I don't mean to say I'm not doing things with a lot of intent now. I definitely am thinking about everything I do, obviously. But it's more about not trying to be something and more just letting your work become something. You know, let the ideas you have just be those ideas. You know, whatever's coming to mind, whatever you're thinking about, whatever you're interested in is going to show through your work. And I think before I was, you know, I was definitely focusing on things I was interested in, mainly horror art. But it took me a while to realize I'm into other things and those should also come out through my work. I don't have to be a genre artist. I don't have to pigeonhole myself like that. And I guess it also, it was easy because I was going through a transition in medium as well. I went through a wrist surgery about two years ago and couldn't use my right hand for about a year. So I ended up having to do like 100% digital, like composite stuff in order to keep making And eventually, you know, it was just easier to draw digitally when I was trying to make my comeback a little bit. I guess it was kind of a mix between concept changing and my actual method of making. But I don't really see that my style has changed that much within that. I still draw the same way, just using different materials. I have a question for you because I know that you have a pretty large job you're working on right now that is, I'm not going to get into details because I know that I can't, but It's based on an app, like an educational type app. So yeah, the first iteration of of this game actually hasn't come out yet. So I can't say too much, but I can say a fair little bit. I can tell you it's a mobile-based game designed to train emergency medical workers. As I said before, I'm working with Nashbox and Scott Nash over there as the creative director. Yeah, it's a big 
it's a big, big project, a lot of assets. I've never worked on anything even close to this before. And it's just been phenomenal actually taking on a, you know, I've done like series before and tried to stay within a certain codex with a series of pieces, but this is just wholly different where sometimes it's just doing tons and tons of devices and little pieces of equipment and kind of nitpicky little technical drawings. And then sometimes it's a little more inventive and it can just be a, whether it's a scene and drawing different buildings and things like that, I just get to kind of do whatever I want as far as launching into that, taking all that and kind of trying to make it seem like the same game. It's been an interesting challenge. It's been fun for sure. I do have a specific question for you about that because a lot of illustrators would dream about getting a job like this where I know it's going to take you a long time to do. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of a steady job that you're going to have for a while, which is awesome. But at the same time, you know, you love working in horror illustration and doing comedy illustration. And so this is so outside of your wheelhouse. Were you hesitant to do it because you knew you'd be working on a job for so long that was so different from, you know, what you do for your personal Interestingly enough, I'd say it was actually the opposite where I was less hesitant because it was so far outside of what I'm normally doing. So the way I kind of saw it is worst case scenario, I don't love the work I'm doing that much, but I'm still drawing a ton and getting constant work from that. And at least then it's not directly attached to the rest of my work. And it feels like a break from drawing, just like if you have a day job and you come home and you draw for another eight hours because that's your second job. It's switching it up enough so that it doesn't feel like you're going to the second job, the same job. It's like if you're working two retail jobs and you went from eight hours at Filene's to eight hours at Macy's or something, that would be torture. But if you're switching it up, it's not bad. And what it ended up being is that despite the fact that it's not exactly what I do all the time, I'm, I'm given a lot of freedom in it. And it's very interesting. I mean, I've thoroughly enjoyed sometimes just drawing, as I said, little pieces of equipment or things that I don't really know. As I said, it's like for emergency medical workers. So drawing a defibrillator, it's like I've never drawn a defibrillator. So that is interesting the first time you do it. If I had to do it a million times, I might not love it. But yeah, there's always something interesting. And as I said, being given that freedom within it, it's always good, you know, having that. It's so great to have a project that's ongoing because you have some predictability right income and and that's always nice and it's it's rare a lot of times if you're solo freelance or what have you there so i found it interesting how you're flipping back and forth to not only your personal work app design work and teaching do you have techniques on how you juggle that balance between those things yeah your personal life on top yeah right i guess it seems like a lot it is a lot i guess the technique that i use is to just work all the time which I don't know, I find ways to just kind of work sometimes to a fault when I shouldn't be working. You know, if I sit down to watch a movie or something like that, if I've seen the movie before, I'm probably going to take out my iPad and start sketching an idea that I came up with. I don't really use those times to work on client projects. I tend to... Do you feel like burnout then is a big deal for you? No, I'm a little inexhaustible sometimes when it comes to drawing, I guess. I just don't get tired of it very easily. I have a really hard time sleeping too. So if I'm up, I'll draw. If I am kind of like my wrist hurts or something like that and I can't keep drawing, I've drawn too much that day, I'll just do some client outreach or something like that. I mean, I took a big break before I actually went to school after high school. Well, I tried once and it wasn't great. I spent one year at college initially. And then I took five years and I worked at a a hotel, actually a really like upscale hotel. 
I guess in a weird way that kind of motivated me into everything I'm doing now where, to put it bluntly, I was cleaning up after rich people in the most disgusting ways there are. And, you know, people would be very surprised the way a place like that. I mean, it was a very well-run place. Everybody I worked with there was great. But the guests, you know, like there was a a very wealthy main family's uh, wedding there at one point and somebody just pooped on the ground in like the public bathroom outside the event space and that wasn't that weird of a thing to happen i don't know weird things would happen <laughs> or like you know creepy dudes would come with their mistresses and like all these things and i worked there for like 3 years and after a while it just became so legitimately soul sucking i guess you know having something to compare your down days as an illustrator or designer to it gives you that yeah totally yeah before going full-time i'd have to do some part-time jobs where i i worked facilities for the school like it's a good job but you then you, you quickly realize i need to get out of this and so you lean on your skills and what skills you do have right and just double down triple down right and see where that goes i feel like nothing is as motivating as realizing that your worst day as an illustrator or an artist is better than your best day working in most jobs, you know, waiting tables or whatever you're doing. And any artist that's had those type of jobs before they start doing art as a full-time job can appreciate that. So I yeah, totally yeah, I think it's just one that. of those things. It's a, a lot of it's about perspective and about, I guess, about how much work you expect to put in. I know when I was in school, I mean, it's always kind of adjusting how much you think you're going to have to put in. But, you know, I think a couple of years of just working like a kind of annoying, maybe disgusting job is really helpful sometimes. And then, yeah, moving from there, you have a lot more agency when it comes to yourself and what you use your time for. It never feels like a waste of time after that to be like, I'm going to take two hours and contact clients even though i've been drawing for 12 15 hours today it's like yeah what's another two hours right it's the spark of the real work ethic Mm -hmm. you know and and self-discipline i think for bigger better jobs long career of doing what you want and pushing forward with what you've invested your time into i do want to talk to both of you because you're both working at mecca and what other school did you say you worked at max Montserrat in Beverly, Mass. I want to know a little bit about when you found out, because what were you in the middle of in your classes when you found out you had to move from in-class to remote teaching, and how hard was that of a transition? And you both can talk about that because you both are dealing with it. I know for me, I mean, it fell during spring break when we found out the way the semester was going to be progressing. I had two big projects due coming back from break. And initially, I didn't think it was going to disrupt things that much because, you know, nobody really knew how long things were going to take. I know both schools were hopeful that we were going to come back and they kind of gave just like an extended break at first just to kind of feel things out. I mean, it's the responsible thing to do. You don't want to just call the semester before you have any info. But yeah, I think for me, it, it was weird. We were just in the middle of these two huge culminating projects and things were really starting to come together. Because as you guys know, from going to school, it takes about half the semester to get in the rhythm of a class. And then the second half of the semester is really where you do the majority of your work and you feel like you have gained the confidence for it. I can't even imagine having to make that switch as a yeah. student or as a teacher. What about you, Joe? What do you feel like the transition was like? I've been watching it from the sidelines because I didn't teach a class (laughs) this semester, just luckily. (laughs) Oh, you didn't? I thought you were teaching this semester. No, I'm teaching next semester. So this was a semester off for me. Yeah, it's just stupid luck timing. Right? Yeah, you nailed that. But I've been watching it and 
it's been particularly difficult on the students, which I can imagine, because they're feeling gypped. I read online somewhere, someone described it as like paying $75,000 for a front row ticket to Beyonce and then getting informed mm-hmm. that it's going to be a webcast. Right. right. <laughs> well, seriously. And, and a lot of those students pay extra another 10000 to live on campus and then they're sent home. Do they get any type of a refund for that? You'd think that they would. I have no yeah, idea, but I'm so. glad I'm not part of that. <laughs> yeah, it's a difficult discussion on all fronts, right? With administration and with students. The fact that it's a freak right. pandemic. Well, I think that's one of the, the other things that makes it hard on everybody, but also a lot of the students. I mean, everybody's being very cool about it. That's one thing I will say about this whole situation is everybody's been very understanding on the faculty end, administration end, and the students but, you know, I think everybody is also a little hesitant to complain about their situation if they're healthy right now. And to say, right. oh, I feel like I'm right. this isn't what I signed up for. They acknowledge that things are awful all over right now. But I also don't think it makes anybody selfish or anything like that to acknowledge that their situation is also awful right now, along with everybody else. Right. But yeah, there has been a lot of support, I know, for students and faculty just as far as resources and getting your class back up and going and everybody just trying to look out for one another, even though we're not in the in the same place. But yeah, I think it's just kind of doing what you can do in the very uncertain time and where nobody really knows how long this is going to go for. I feel awful for everybody in thesis right now, though, who's watching their whole four years come to fruition with you know, the hopes for a fall show instead of a show before you graduate. You take your parents, your grandparents to see your work and kind of yeah. show off a little bit. It's a bummer that's being taken away. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really tough. How has critiques been going? Do you do critiques over Zoom? Have people share their screens so you can see their work? Yeah, so I've been doing a lot with uh, Google Drive and slideshows and things like that so that people can comment on them and, you know, they can kind of share things with me and update them as they go. Yeah. Crits have, just in the interest of keeping things simple and not having weird, this person can't connect, this person needs to use Zoom, and this person needs to use Google Hangouts or something like that, I've just been kind of meeting one-on-one mostly with my students. Right. I like having the class discussions, but in a pinch, it's in this situation, I just want to get people portfolio pieces and learn what we set out to learn in the beginning of the semester. So I guess in that way, it, it does help a little bit to be able to approach everybody's situation differently. One person was really struggling with backgrounds and another person was trying to get more dynamic line into their work. It's a lot easier to be like, okay, cool, I'm just going to treat everybody's situation ever so slightly differently, give you this assignment, give you this assignment. So I guess, yeah, there is a bit of a silver lining there of being able to focus in on each separate person. As far as thesis, when you talked about how you felt bad for students with thesis going on right now and they're supposed to graduate, it made me think on top of that, when you graduate from an art college and you're going out into the world trying to make a living, it's such a hard transition. And now they're going to be dealing with an economy that's just a mess. It's going to be even harder for those students to try to make that leap. And so on top of everything else, they're dealing with that too. And so you got to feel bad for them in that sense. And hopefully things won't last that much longer and and things can Mm -hmm. start turning around. But I mean, there's lots of artists right now that are struggling, that have been doing it for a long time, and they're struggling. So to just be getting out of school, it's got to be even more challenging. 
Yeah. I think as illustrators, though, we aren't going to get hit that hard. I mean, obviously, others will feel it more. But, you know, in times like this, there's a lot of need for, like, editorial illustration, helping people kind of digest what's happening. I think we've seen a bit of a halt in that because there's a bit of a time of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. But once we have, like, a more of a timeline on this and people feel a little more sure about what's going on, I think we'll see a bit of like an uptick in that and people will start reaching out to artists more, you know, to get their perspective and their view on this whole situation. I know I've seen and participated in tons of, you know, calls for art right now, whether it's like urges to stay home or like PSA style illustrations, things like that. I know a lot of people are holding contests, which obviously don't fully pay the bills, but yeah, I could see it being a little easier on illustrators. But, you know, the students who are, like, say, ceramics-driven right now, I don't know what they're doing, honestly. Illustrators, it's actually a little helpful to have that remote relationship because it's more like the real world. I mean, like, how often do you really meet with a client? I mean, if they're local, hopefully you do have a cup of coffee or something like that. But for the most part, it's, like, on the phone, email, maybe a Zoom cast or something like that. But, yeah, if you've just been sent home for the rest of the semester and you're a ceramics major, how many of them have a wheel and a kiln? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like thousands and yeah. thousands of dollars worth of equipment. Yeah, that's where you got to get creative. Right. Start looking at old ways on making ceramics, right. right? And like start looking back in history a little bit, finding what you can, can't do. That's why it's so important to diversify your income streams. And we've talked about this on the show before. I know what's crazy for me, all my... But the majority of the work I usually get is commission-based for companies and tends to be marketing, advertising-based. That all stopped for me. And so like 75% of my business that was like Mm -hmm. the bulk of my business is now zero. And the only income that's coming in is 10% of my business was before, right? right? So now that 10% has become my Mm -hmm. 100%. And like just direct sales of prints and, and stuff like that. So... I'm thankful that I even have that, but it's also opened my mind to my own vulnerabilities as a business too. So I think there's, again, like the silver lining there. But coming out of school is going to be particularly difficult where the students might not have these different streams of income yet. So they're going to have to be more resilient and figure Mm -hmm. out this. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody needs that adjustment period anyway. And maybe this will kind of have a bit of a different perspective on it. I know a lot of the people that we had graduated with, Lewis, kind of expected work right away. You know, I kind of was hoping for work pretty early on. I don't know, my hopes were like, okay, well, hopefully within like six months to a year, I've got my first editorial gig or this or that. And that perspective totally changed after six months. And I was like, oh boy, <laughs> I'm, I'm in hot water. I don't, you know, I don't know where to find this work. I don't know what to do. Because so much of it is just finding your own way. I mean, professors and instructors are great at giving you some advice on how to get out there and introduce yourself to people and what avenues there are. But you still have to have that adjustment period. Let's dig into that a little bit. What did you do six months out when you realized this? Like, oh, mm-hmm. oh crap, what am I going to do? What did you do? I'm sure lots of people fall into that situation. Yeah. I mean, I did a lot of things. I did everything from just trying to push prints all over different craft shops and this and that. I tried to just come up with different series because that's what I've been told is people want to see you do a series. People want to see you crank out some work that feels like they know what they would hire you for. And I did that. I reached out to tons and tons of art directors, tons of shop owners. I looked into 
doing some screen printing things working for a screen printing business so I could kind of use their resources to move forward. I don't know, I was kind of grabbing at everything I read online, honestly. It's hard to like kind of remember everything I was doing at that point because I would just read articles and I would just bullet point, oh, I haven't tried that. Oh, I haven't tried this. Oh, I haven't just tried leaving my business cards everywhere. I haven't tried getting postcards and just leaving those everywhere, you know? The only thing that really started to help was actually to start emailing other illustrators. And I just started rapid fire doing that. And I would send like five a day for three or four months, I'd say. And just tried to be very like polite and humble and understanding that they probably wouldn't be able to get back to me. But I would just ask very direct questions, send some of my work, ask for advice. And that's how I got pretty much all the real advice that I got to move forward and how I got a little bit more direction under me is just the 5% of those people who got back to me with really great answers. Some of them had direct advice of like, here's what you got to do. I think you need to take your work and move in this direction. Other people were a lot more vague about it and just kind of have, this is what worked for me. I hope something else works for you. But yeah, I think the biggest thing is just asking other people what is working because you can feel like you're not sure if you're moving in the right or wrong direction. It's very hard to go full steam into that when you feel like you may or may not be wasting your time yeah on this or that avenue it's a great way to use your network another mm -hmm. thing we've been talking about and so what are some ways that you network either to get work or like you said to talk to other artists i mean i guess kind of the normal ways i mean i send a lot of postcards like a lot of postcards i send a lot of follow-up emails to those try to respond to specific projects that people are working on both if they're an art director or something like that both in their art direction career and something else that i can find of theirs i follow these people on instagram and things like that sometimes if they have a separate little craft hobby or something sometimes i'll just send an email without prerogative to get work and just to say hey i really loved like there's this uh, art director who was doing this project leafiness where she was painting leaves she would just find a leaf outside and she'd use acrylic paint on it and they're phenomenal they're beautiful so i just send things like that and be like hey i saw this series of yours i really enjoy it and just not plug myself at all just kind of like keep that relationship alive and hopefully they notice oh right you've sent me things before you you want to work for me okay you're interested in me as an artist and in art in general it's so smart to go with the direct personal route first before you even bring up any business relationship right you're so much more likely to recommend your friends or people you already have a relationship with right yeah i think a mix of that and then i try to reach out on social media a lot as well but honestly i can never really tell how that feels i don't know i think being a younger illustrator i get a little self-conscious about contacting people via instagram and being more casual about it i never want to come off as unprofessional i want to come off as friendly and you know casual just like everybody else. But I do worry sometimes in contacting art directors via social media that, you know, I might come off a little too much like, oh, hey, dude, you know, what's up? I love your stuff. I'd love to work for you. I just don't want to blend in with a bunch of other people popping in their DMs who, you know, 3 a.m. were like, oh, that's right. I should totally do stuff for the New York Times, you know? Right. Yeah. I've noticed with like networking, the people that I know personally that have actually been able to turn their art into a career and they're doing a good job with it is it's only people that actually have social skills. There was a lot of people that we went to school with that didn't have the greatest social skills and they're not doing anything. And so the fact that if you're an artist out there and you're able to network like we're talking about and you're able to reach out to people and communicate and it doesn't make you totally uncomfortable, you're probably going to do better. And if that's not you, 
you're going to have to figure out a way to work on that because without social skills and the ability to network with people, it's going to be hard to succeed. Right. It's going to be a lot harder. It's not impossible, though. You'll have to end up having to have great independent projects that are massly liked and will be purchased in masses. There's plenty of people who are very introverted, but made like an incredible game, like a credible card game Mm -hmm. or something. And just everyone falls in love with it or like a comic series that everyone can relate to somehow. So if you're very introverted, you still have to push yourself even harder to find your line of relatability. I think that is the key. I think also, I mean, only a certain amount of it has to do with, I think, being a social person. I mean, I like talking to people. I like going to bars and starting up conversations with strangers even. But it's a whole different thing when you're trying to sell yourself to an art director and get projects and things like that. I think it's different than being social and it's a different hat you have to put on. You have to get comfortable with it. You have to get comfortable kind of advocating for yourself without feeling like you're bragging or being a little too overzealous about it. I think that's something, I don't know if you guys had to get used to that, but I didn't feel comfortable with that at first. I feel like I'm still kind of warming up to it every day of being a little more confident, being a little less sheepish about asking for work that I think I would do a great job on. And it's kind of like you want to be confident in yourself. And so you come across as professional and you know what you're doing, but you don't want to be arrogant. So it's like this mix of confidence and humility. And you really want to strike that balance because if you're coming across as arrogant and overconfidence, nobody likes that either. But you can't be like you're saying sheepish so that people are like scared to hire you because I don't even know if this person thinks that they can accomplish this project. Right. And people get quickly self-conscious about their own ideas when they're talking to a creative too, because they think, oh, you went through all this schooling or you practice all the time that their idea might not be valid. But Mm -hmm. it's finding that balance too on how to accept other people's ideas, how to incorporate them, how to talk through that, how to lift everyone's spirits and gets you to the finish line that you want in a project. Right. Right, right. Yeah. Honestly, what you said about balance, Lewis, is very true. I don't know. I I definitely feel like there's a part of it that needs to be acknowledged that's like, this person doesn't know you, most likely. I mean, maybe they do. Maybe they maybe you guys have met in passing or something like that. But most of the people who hire you or that you're looking for work from, you have to acknowledge, you don't know me at all. And that's okay. We can get to know each other and hopefully you get to know me as a reliable illustrator. But they have no reason to dislike you either. So there's no reason to be shy about it. But there's also no reason to reach out in an arrogant way like you deserve this project. It's like, yeah, you could probably do a great job on it. Does that mean like you deserve it or you deserve it over somebody else? No. But you can still advocate for yourself and be like, no, I think I would do a great project. I think I should get this job based off of the fact that I put in the work. But also, if you don't get the job, they don't know you. They do know other illustrators. They've hired other people. They need somebody to knock out a job, especially if it's in editorial or something like that. They need somebody reliable. So, you know, I think not taking it personal, but also realizing that to them for a little while, you are just an email that you sent. You're just a postcard. Because that's just the thing. A postcard doesn't shake your hand, you know? Yeah. You talked a lot about, like, reaching out to people for jobs. And I know that Joe's done this, too. And I have, too. Can you talk a little bit about that initiative? Because a lot of people maybe think that artists just sit back and wait for people to contact them and hire them. But a lot of times, we take initiative and, and reach out to people and show our interest in what they're doing and get jobs that way. Can you both talk about mm-hmm. the importance of that? 
Yeah. Well, I know personally for me, I mean, I would probably have made $5 so far if I hadn't reached (laughs) out to anyone. I mean, I like nothing has happened without me reaching out to people. I guess the biggest thing is to figure out who you're reaching out to and not have it be a waste of your time to just be messaging every art director. You know, you Google art director and you're like, okay, I'm just going to start sending these people things because if there's no direction in it, they also don't know what to do with you. I mean, right. You know, short of to be more focused. Yeah. I mean, short of them being like, oh, I'm about to do a piece on gun control for the Washington Post. And then they look at your work and it's like, oh, it's 95% gun control pieces. It's like, that's never going to happen. Right. Finding other artists that are like you, figuring out the projects they've done, who they've worked with, doing the extra research beforehand and kind of setting yourself up with like a contact list, a very direct contact list with notes on it. You know, when you look up the art director or creative director or anything, remind yourself, right, they worked with Barry Blitt and they worked with this person, this person. I can talk about this project they worked on or they used to work for GQ. They used to do this. Just little reminders for yourself. Maybe you don't talk about them with that person in the email or the postcard, but familiarizing yourself so that you can say that if you are trying to get work from the Washington Post, you can talk about these artists they've worked with that are similar to you, but don't bring this X factor that you can point out and you can say, hey, I know you've worked with these people. I think you'd really love to work with me. I can bring more blank into your articles. Right. Things like that. Yeah. What about you, Joe? What do you... uh, what do you generally look for? Well, one, I liked what you said in the very beginning where you would have only made $5 if you sat back and did nothing. Yeah. And exactly. so when you first start off, when I first started off, I would have had to say the same thing. And that's the only way I was able to start my career was to get out there, put myself in front of people, talk face to face, tell them what I could do for them, inform them what you can do for them. Because a lot of times people don't know, simply don't know what you can do and how you could help with their initiatives, their job. And so it really ends up being just an education game. But as time goes on, jobs will come to you and you shouldn't take the back seat. but more and more jobs will come to you because of all that legwork you've done. Yeah. And then once that starts happening, you can sit back a little bit when you have people reaching out to you. But it does take a lot of initiative on your part, especially at the beginning. Mm-hmm. If you're not willing to do that, then you're probably not cut out for this business because without that, you'd make $5. Right. Yeah. So this could lead to this question, this conversation. We like to talk about failure and we shouldn't stigmatize failure and be open about that. That's how we all learn. That's how I think listeners will learn the best is from listening to our failures, how we've overcome them. So what comes to mind to you, Max, of something that you've quote unquote failed at and how you overcame? Huh. Yeah. I'm trying to think. I mean, there definitely are things. I guess it's not necessarily that there are like particular projects or anything like that. I guess I view my failures in a couple different ways of when I don't see the potential of a series of pieces or something, and then I look back on them and I think like, oh, well, if I had just stretched this a little bit further, if I had just kind of leaned away from my original intent with this, I could have I could have really fleshed this project out. I think that's where most of my failures come in, and they're, they're very small feeling. You know, they just feel like another step in the right direction after a while of like, okay, well, if I just spent more time concepting, this would have been fine. The failure aspect in a lot of instances for me comes down to unbilled hours, basically, where I'll put too much time into this promotional campaign or that promotional campaign or this personal series and then it just kind of fizzles out and it becomes nothing and then I have to think back and think oh I spent like 72 hours on that yeah 
I spent 50 bucks getting the postcards. And then I don't like to actually do the math on those things because that's just not, you know, that's not good for your psyche. But I do see those things as failures. And again, like light failures and things to be learned from. But yeah, being an illustrator or a designer, a lot of the time you're running your own business if you're like a sole proprietorship or something. So you have to remind yourself, these are working hours. It'd be like if you're working on commission at Men's Warehouse and then for like a whole week or two weeks, you just didn't sell anything and you are not getting an hourly wage. But still, you came in and you worked and you right. you did this. It's interesting what you think is a failure in the moment. Right. But then looking back at it, you're like, you know, by putting in those 72 hours on that project, I gained more than I could even imagine in other ways. Absolutely. Or like, yeah, I put 50 bucks out for a postcard run that made me no money. But what did I learn out of that? I learned that maybe what I did there didn't work. Something I did there didn't work. Mm-hmm. And I can now build off of that. I think that's where failure is a positive thing. Yeah, for sure. I think it can be positive in a lot of different ways. I mean, especially with something like illustration. Obviously, I think there's a plateau at a certain point where you get really comfortable with the work you're making and you know your system and everything like that. But you're still trying to fine tune everything. I think there's failures like that. And then there's the actual like you invest way too much in a project before you've actually market tested it and things like that, which is obviously not very easy to do without putting in the work in the first place. You have to have a product to test to your market before you can figure out if it is viable. I don't know. I think just kind of knowing your limits and knowing how much work you have to put in before figuring out if people might be interested in this or that. I know I've recently gotten a lot more practice like mocking things up, just kind of showing, you know, I want to do some surface design projects. I want to do these personal, uh, working on this series of wood cutouts that I'm going to be screen printing. And I don't want to invest the two grand into that project just to try to sell them and realize, oh, well, I should have asked more people about this. I should have actually gotten some pre-orders. I should have actually done my market research. Right. So being able to do those mock-ups and save yourself some time and not buy the lumber and not buy the saws and this and that. I think there are workarounds in the digital age and there's, I know, Lewis, you've had tons of success on Kickstarter or, wait, Indiegogo, is that what you use? I think you use both. I've used both of them, yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Which I've never tried to do a Kickstarter campaign or anything. But, you know, I think things like that allow you to fail in a safer environment, fail with a net, you know? And I think that's really important. You never want it to be a situation where you sour yourself to your work because you sunk too much into it and now you have to really crawl out of a hole it's like you'd rather kind of sink a little bit and then make a comeback and you know go back at it but yeah along the same topic i guess is there anything else you wish you had known when you first started out i guess i kind of wish i had known that nobody else's advice was going to be either completely useless or completely helpful to me yeah great yeah you know, going through school, there were a lot of children's book artists, for instance, who were teaching us. And I definitely listened to them on technique and all this stuff. But I could have listened a lot more on the way they promoted themselves, the way they ran their business, the way they concepted. But I think I just saw myself as separate from that because I was like, oh, well, you work in a different part of the industry from me. But I wasn't working in a part of the industry at that time. You know, I was a student. I was trying to figure out where I was going and just thought I knew where I was going. Right. We all like to think we have a specific identity, but that has to take shape over time, you know, and we're all eager to get there. 
but I guess a little mix of listening more to some people and then also not just taking the advice of others. For a while, I was using like a moniker for my illustration work because I thought I was supposed to, basically. And as stupid as that sounds, I saw everybody else who was making work kind of like mine, working under a pseudonym. And I was like, oh, okay, so I should come up with a pseudonym that matches my work more than my actual name does. Right. Kind of brand myself. That's just like one example of something that's just like you see these things happening and you're like, okay, so that's good advice. I should do that. Or you reach out to some other illustrators and they tell you, oh, what you need to do is this. And then you do it and it doesn't work. And it's like, yeah, because you let somebody else tell you what to do instead of taking their advice, processing it, writing it down, put it in a Google Doc and have everybody's information separated out, highlight different words, things like that. It saves a lot of time rather than just being like, okay, I'm going to try this person's method of reaching out to people. I'm going to now try this person's method. It's like, no, look at your own work, look at what they've done. Acknowledge also that sometimes those people got gigs because they contacted at the right time or they didn't contact anybody and they, somebody found them at the right time. There's no accounting for just circumstances and things, too. So I think it's a mix of taking things with a grain of salt and giving everything the attention it deserves until you realize, okay, well, that doesn't apply to me, really. So cool. Like, good thing I thought about it, but I won't be using that method of promoting myself. I agree with you 100%. I think what we want to think about is just the fact that everyone made their career differently. And so things maybe will work for you that don't work for me and vice versa. And so the more perspectives you can get and the more things you can try out, the better because trying to emulate just one person, what one person did, and then do that yourself, it doesn't mean it's going to work for you. So you really have to be creative. And it is sometimes a lot of trial and error, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's all a risk. Yeah. Have you listened to many of the other episodes that we had on Thumbnail? Yeah, yeah, fair amount. As you were listening, was there anything that we talked about that came to mind that you would disagree with or something different? Because we like to hear the different perspectives because what we say, again, like what we were just saying, isn't always the right thing Mm -hmm. for everybody. It's just like our own perspectives. Is there anything that comes to mind maybe that you were like, maybe I don't completely agree with that? I'm trying to think. I don't think I really disagreed with anything. I think there are certain aspects that and this wouldn't be unique to your podcast, as I listen to a bunch of other illustration podcasts too, where I hear a lot of things that I can't necessarily use, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. For instance, Lewis, my work and your work is very different. And I think the potentials for them are also almost like polar opposites. Like if I made a book out of my like sketchbook digital stuff, there wouldn't be a market for it. It would be like a big mix match of, well, do you like kind of politics sometimes and then goofy NBA drawings sometimes and weird dark humor? It's like, eh, there's just, I think there's always a market. There's always a market. I think you gotta give yourself some credit there. Right. But it'd be, you know, it's it's a hard sell to make. I would buy the book. It's a hard sell. I think what's really important is showing what you love, what you're good at. Mm -hmm. And I think the market does find you. Right. As weird as the market could be, like you could still hit, there's just so many people out there. You could take a piece of that pie, I think. Yeah. I think it's just a little harder sometimes to kind of define what that book would look like to people or something like that. But, you know, I think for the most part, or at least like anything I can think of, I've agreed with you guys. You mentioned at one point Nina Simone. You guys don't listen to Nina Simone? She's the best. You guys should listen to Nina Simone. That's the only thing I noticed then. Is that the one uh, we were talking about, the, the port oh, for the... Oh, right, the mural. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. 
<laughs> that's the only thing that I listened to on this that I was like, what? You guys don't know Nina Simone? <laughs> like, but that's the uh, only thing. I'm so bad at names. No, don't worry about it. It's not even funny how bad at names I am. No, I probably have listened. Oh, yeah. I may have too. I'm not good with names either. I mean, who knows? I may not have listened to her. I don't listen to the radio a lot. I listen to more podcasts, so there's a chance I yeah. haven't heard her. Yeah, she sang uh, Feeling Good is one of her uh, more popular ones, and then Blood on the Leaves, too. That one's, like, heartbreaking, but amazing. I'll have to look for it. Will you tell people how to find you, Max, so that if they're interested oh, in yeah. learning more about your work? Yeah, totally. You can find my website at Max Irwin, that's E-R-W-I-N dot design, not dot com, or at Max Irwin underscore illustration on Instagram or Twitter. Awesome. Yeah. And that's pretty much where I'm at. I'm on like working, not working and dribble and most of those platforms, but they're all just under my name, Max Irwin illustration. So yeah, you can kind of find me uh, anywhere with that. And we'll post those in the show notes too, yeah. so everyone can find them. Yeah, yeah for sure. Sure. And Joe and I have a Etsy promotion for podcast listeners, which is just use the promo code thumbnail, check out, get you 25% off. So that's just for podcast listeners. Thanks for joining us. And you'll notice next time you tune in, Max will be with us again. We're going to be talking about pet peeves. So hope we'll see you guys then. And I got a lot of them. <laughs> oh, yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks, everybody. And take care. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. Thanks, Max.